Why, hello, and welcome back to the podcast. This is Jonathan Edwards, and we're in the middle of another great Bible conversation, this time about Matthew and the kingdom. Joining me is Mike Criswell, and as we talked about last time, Mike wrote the commentary for the Gospel of Matthew in the Contending for the Faith commentary series. Great conversation. You really need to go back and listen to that one before you listen to this one. If you have and you're caught up, then we're going to start with the conversation about prophecy in Matthew and what that meant to the original audience. But we're also going to talk about the kingdom and how this theme is what Matthew's gospel is all about. It's what Jesus' ministry is about, establishing this kingdom. And this spiritual kingdom is on full display in the conversation. So let's jump back into it, shall we? One of the things that that I understand as I read through Matthew is he quotes a lot of prophecy mm-hmm. uh, that it might be fulfilled, this right. phrase, that it might be fulfilled. And I heard you say this. I think I've preached it and others have as well, that in the first century, um, the scriptures that like Timothy learned from youth and that other first century believers had would have been the Old Testament scriptures, the 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 law and the prophets. And so Matthew is writing this work and he's tying it back to the law and the prophets. What's that going to be like for them? Whereas for us, we, we might, we might know some of them. Uh, we might have read them before, but take us into, again, if you can, the, the heart of a Jewish first century Christian. What does it mean to have all those scripture, all those prophecies in Matthew? You know, ironically, the first Christians their Bible was the what we would call the Old Testament. The New Testament books had not yet been written and or were in the process of being written through the first century. And so when the scriptures teach us or talk about scripture, for example, Paul says, you know, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That doesn't exclude the New Covenant, the New Testament, but specifically in his day, that very likely could have at least in part related or referred to the Old Testament scriptures. Right. The Bereans in Acts 17 searched the scriptures daily to see if those things were true. Now, they weren't running to your King James Bible and looking at the New <laughs> Testament. They were looking at the Old Testament prophecies sure. where Paul was alleging that Jesus was Christ. Well, what does this Paul know? Let's go see if that really was what Isaiah said. Right. So the Old Testament prophecies were extremely important. And again, people knew that those prophecies were going to have to be fulfilled if this individual were the true Messiah. So, for example, Isaiah 7, 14, Matthew begins with that prophecy talking about a virgin will conceive and bear a son. Well, that goes all the way back 700 years before Jesus was born to the book of Isaiah, chapter 7. And then later on, some probably some 40 times or so, Matthew either alludes to and or shows directly that Jesus fulfills Old Testament mm-hmm. prophecies. Now, you're thinking 28 chapters, of course, it, the original writing of Matthew wouldn't have had chapters because that came much later, but that's a lot of prophecy tucked right. into one single volume. Right. And Matthew shows how that Jesus fulfilled those things. Mm-hmm. And so I think what it is, it's a commentary as much as anything on the old, what we would call the Old Testament. What we sometimes don't realize is that, you know, the two Testaments, as we would think of, old and new, uh, there is indeed a contrast 
but there's also a great continuity mm-hmm. because the themes that we find in the old are fulfilled in the new. I think it, it's attributed to Augustine as to whether he really you know, came up with this uh, or not may be disputable, but something to the effect of the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, sealed, right, right. and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Right. So in other words, there's this continuity in this string of redemption that really goes back to Genesis uh, where you have uh, the seed of woman mm-hmm. who is the Messiah mm-hmm. crushing the head of the serpent. So really, you know, the scripture is one continuous theme, although covering a great amount of time. I feel like we're getting better at that yeah. in the Lord's church of seeing this theme of continuity mm-hmm. um, instead of making just a, a really big line, just start Matthew, read to the end, and then go back to Matthew and read to the end and repeat. Um, I, I've not only in, in your presentations, but in, in other lectures and, and sermons that I've been able to listen to, I am seeing our, our preaching brethren really want to focus on themes that come up again and again and again. Mm-hmm. Let's do one from Matthew that um, you brought up last night, and I want to add one more into it. So you talked about the theme of Jesus' temptation, and you compared it to First John, mm-hmm. lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, and in Matthew 4, his three temptations um, fit into that mold. Well, you go back to Genesis 3, and those three temptations fit into the mold um, about how she saw the fruit and it looked good and it was pleasing that she wanted to be like God, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Mm-hmm. So that theme of temptation in the beginning in the garden, you brought up how they were tempted in the garden and they had all of God's blessings and Jesus is tempted in the desert, you know, in this arid condition. And he has, you know, anyway, I don't know if you want to comment on that, but it was a fantastic and while matthew doesn't develop this luke does a better job not a better job but just a different emphasis jesus is the second adam so there's also that connection of type and a type but you're right um the basic elements that led to what we call today the fall adam and eve sinning are what jesus had to deal with in the mount of temptation you know, you have, like you just mentioned, you have the fruit, and it looks good. It's going to be tasty. It's going to make me wise. Well, he's the first Adam. He and Eve, they fall, even though God had given him them everything in the garden as a great blessing. Jesus, the second Adam, of course, brings eternal life, just like the first Adam brought death. But Jesus is in a deserted wilderness with the wild beasts, you right. know, the Scripture says, and yet he overcomes that right in the face of the devil. And he does so by quoting scripture, by going back to the authority of God. And that's really the, the issue. Adam and Eve left the authority of God and turned their allegiance over to Satan. Right. Jesus never did that. Right, right. I really enjoy that. Well, you just alluded to Luke, a different gospel. And uh, so that makes me want to ask about maybe some differences between Matthew and Luke. So um, ultimately, I'm going to ramble for just a minute, but the question I'm going to get to is the structure of Matthew and why it's called um, in logical order and not chronological mm-hmm. order. So when I read through Matthew and then I read through Mark and then I read through Luke, which are 
what we call the synoptic gospels. They follow a similar um, narrative of, of a, an events. Um, I might see them kind of out of order. And it seems like in Matthew's gospel, Jesus did A, B, C, and then I go over and I'm reading in Luke and Jesus does C, B, A. And then I go, okay, well, if they're telling the same events, why would they do that? Uh, can you help us understand Matthew's structure and then also just continuity between the gospels? One of the things that I think you have to start with is what did a history narrative look like in the first century? Okay. Today, if we pick up a history, a biography of some great person, we probably want to know pretty much every detail about their life, their childhood, their parentage, their, you know, their, their, their work, their death. Well, we have some of those elements in a first century biography. But that wasn't expected. In other words, biographies, even in the first century, were not expected to be a uh, you know detail by detail account of every moment of that person's life. They primarily focused on the ministry or the work of that individual, mm-hmm. with of course the beginning of their life and maybe something about the end. But not all of these details. Now, Matthew does give some of the details. He gives us, for example, the birth of Jesus, mm-hmm. and he gives us details about the death of Jesus. But in that work-oriented space of about three and a half years. He doesn't give us a chronology necessarily, but he gives us a thematic study. What's the difference between a chronology and a thematic study? Okay, for example, Matthew seems to take material. And by the way, I think there were sources out there that Matthew used. I I believe that he was inspired, superintended by the Holy Spirit. But, you know, he very well may have had some notes, some oral traditions, some things that he incorporates into his, his narrative. But Matthew takes his volume of material, let's say his, his sack of material, and he collates it. He puts it together by theme. So you have five sections, for example, in Matthew, which basically end up being five sermons. Now, did those sermons occur in that chronological order with the Sermon on the Mount coming first and then, you know, other things coming in the exact order that Matthew gives them? Well, maybe, but even if they didn't, that doesn't besmirch the credibility of Matthew because that wasn't expected in that day. Okay. Now, you mentioned Luke. Luke tends to be, it seems, the writer who is most like a modern historian. In fact, in Luke's prologue, he talks, and by the way, Luke also records Acts. He also writes Acts. Right, right. But uh, Luke starts out in his prologue and begins by talking about the fact that he has researched the material, he has put it together in a in an order, more logical or more of a chronological order, and so it doesn't exclude the thematic nature of Luke to some degree. But Luke's going to give you a much more. Uh, this is what happened, and then this is what happened, and then okay. this is what happened. Okay. So Luke is more A B C, and Matthew is more C A B or, or, or C, whatever C C A A A B B B or whatever. <laughs> and there are patterns in Matthew, but. Matthew is arranging his material, and he may be doing this. We don't know, and I think we have to be careful with our conjecture, but he may be doing this because of his audience. Maybe right. his audience needs to know about these things that Matthew just happens to include and call them the five discourses. Um, but he's not necessarily interested in telling us everything that happened right after each right. other. One point I'll also make, and you may or may not you know, find this of any interest, but sometimes we 
look at the Gospels, you know, the word synoptic means to see alike. It has the word optic in it, like okay. optic nerve. Okay, so um, we look at the, the Gospels, and, and you'll find books that try to parallel the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and <clears throat> develop the chronology of when was this said, and, and, you know, why is this out of order? But, you know, it very well may be, too, that when we read a certain sermon in Matthew, and we don't find that same sermon exactly in the same spot chronologically in Luke. Right. Well, what if Jesus gave that same same sermon two or three times? Right, right. All of us as preachers recirculate, regurgitate our material. <laughs> now, every time I give a sermon, it very likely is not going to be like the one previous because I don't use a lot of notes. It's extemporaneous. Right. But it's going to be the same thing. So when we find two or three different accounts of maybe some particular issue, we shouldn't try to force them into some sort of an artificial chronology because maybe Jesus is teaching that sermon over and over, or maybe the writer is just being thematic. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm going to chew on that one because it, it really does make sense to me as a preacher who's preached the same sermon and sometimes to the point where my kids could get up and preach it uh, you know, they've heard it so many times, but then you might use an example that came to you that Sunday and it didn't come to you the first five times you preached it. But in, in this example, that's the one that Luke wrote about, whereas Matthew wrote about the first time it was given. And so there is just a, a bit of difference between the two, but both are legitimate. There's an organic nature to speaking, especially extemporaneously. For example, you know, you've been overseas, worked overseas. I've been in Africa many years. Sometimes when I'm talking about a certain passage, I know basically what I want to say. I know the points that I want to draw out of that. But I'll just look out across the audience or look out across the field and see something that, il- that I can illustrate the sermon. So right. I use something that they understand. Right. That's that what Jesus sense. did. You know, Jesus did that with the parables. You used a phrase um, a, a little bit ago in talking about how Matthew came to write his book. And it's a phrase that um, I might be familiar with, but but if I wasn't, you know, maybe I'm going to hide behind this. I'm, I'm familiar with it, but maybe I wasn't. No. <laughs> but uh, superintend. Uh, I think a very, let me try this, a very elementary or basic view of interpreta- of inspiration is that the Holy Spirit told me what to write and I wrote it. Yes. But... The Bible's not that simple as far as uh, when they put together their sources. You said last night and uh, throughout the series that he had sources, that they, you know, talk to each other. It's likely that, that these synoptic Gospels are written by guys who interacted with each other. So this it starts to get a little bit more complicated, but I, I don't think it makes us lose our faith. If anything, it strengthens my faith to know that it's more complicated than the Holy Spirit told me, and I, I wrote right. down directly what he said. Right. I think I used this illustration the other evening that sometimes we view inspiration through the lens of pictures that we've seen or paintings from, like, the Middle Ages or whatever, where, you know, Matthew's yeah. sitting there writing. There's this beam of light just oh. banging him on the head, <laughs> and that means that the Holy Spirit is infusing in Matthew, right. and his hand is He's very mechanical. I don't think that the process is mechanical. And let kind of develop that or flesh that out. Uh, of course, you're dealing with people. The writers are individual; they're humans. They have their own will. 
They have their own thoughts. They have their own culture. Right. They have their own background. Right. God uses, I believe, that that in an individual. He doesn't uh, short circuit a man's brain or a man's culture to come out with this mechanized gospel account. What he does is he allows these writers to add things that they find maybe needful for their people, their congregations, or things they find of interest. And he gives us, I believe, enough in what we do have, because obviously not everything Jesus said could be written down even if you had all the notes. You know, I mean, obviously uh, Jesus did many things that we don't know about. Right. But what we do know is given to inspire faith. So I think God uses the individual and when I use the word superintend, what I mean is he oversees. You know, uh, for example, a school may have a superintendent. Okay. Okay, a superintendent is going to be someone who basically oversees the mechanism, the process of whatever's going on in that school system. And I'm not in academics, so I don't really know what all that, that person does. But he oversees it. Now, that doesn't mean he controls, right? in, in the strictest sense, every single movement that his people... Micromanaging. Micromanage. Yeah. Now, I do believe that when it comes to truth, we might say God micromanages because he is superintendent, superintending the content and the veracity. Right. We believe in what we call verbal plenary inspiration, which is every word as it was written in the original was what God wanted written. It's inspired. It's God breathed via a human instrument. Mm-hmm. And so I believe that the content, at least, in, in the, the, the Gospels, while written from the human hand, in fact, you know, Paul argues that we have a treasure through the apostles in, in, in jars of clay. God utilizes the human condition to write the scriptures. But it's not this mechanized, artificial beam of light that then causes the hand to move. He's allowing Matthew to describe things to his own people. He's allowing Luke in the Act, book of Acts to describe things that he finds interesting. Right. So I think that's what ins- inspiration is a tough issue. How does that work? Because I think it's beyond us, really. Right. Well, you know, I'll, I'll say this. This is a thought that just popped in my mind while you were speaking. We could ask for a book that was just everything in it was directly from God, as though it, it, it came down, floated down from the heavens. But Adam and Eve had that, and it still didn't work. Good point. You know, it was a direct, do not eat from this. And it was just that it's one. Very short. <laughs> a very simple command. And so for those that, that feel like if we say that it's uh, this superintending thing seems a little bit out there, I think we should just say it's God breathed the end. Um, we value truth as truth, but... What you're talking about as far as stylistic difference and the ability for a writer to project into the book, it doesn't take away from inspiration. It actually makes a stronger case for it, in my opinion. So I'm thankful for it. God has always been interested in interacting with his people, with his creation. You find that in the garden. You find that even now. Why would God give us his word how do I phrase this? In a way that didn't include him in some way. Now, if it didn't include us in some way, then it would be probably outside of our understanding. Right. 
So God utilizes these jars of clay, the apostles and, and those who are inspired. And by inspiration, I don't mean it makes us feel good. I mean, it's something that's God breathed, which right. is actually what the word means. But God utilizes these individuals to give us his mind. In fact, Paul develops this in First Corinthians chapter 2. He says, you know, the Holy Spirit knows the mind of God. Of course, Jesus promised his apostles to send them the Holy Spirit that would guide them into all truth. So they knew the mind of God because God had revealed it. But God allowed these men to be men. Mm -hmm. He didn't turn them into, uh, you know, superhumans or robots. And that's beautiful to me that God would, would choose to do that, but also have enough confidence in us as humans to give us divine revelation and then say, you can understand this, right? You can you can obey this and and find a relationship with me through this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I mentioned maybe a few minutes ago, um, got a little sidetracked, but the element of faith. I do believe that when we talk about inspiration, we probably do come in with a bias of faith. I mean, maybe not everyone does. Now, I do believe faith can be developed by reading the scriptures, but. You know, when you talk about, well, this is God-breathed or God-given, if I have no faith in that at all, I think, well, no, and I just walk away. But at the end of the day, I think there are elements in that process that show us that God really was behind this. You know, you right. find continuity, you find other things right. in the scriptures. Right. So we can't go too far in a discussion on Matthew without talking about the word kingdom. Mm-hmm. And maybe to the listener, that seems a little bit out of place, but I've heard you use that word and that phrase several times across the last few nights. And so um, let me just ask this question based on Matthew 4. Jesus' first words in his public ministry, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Um, I feel like as a Christian, I might know what repentance means roughly to change. But when it comes to the kingdom of heaven, uh, maybe because I live in democratic America, you know, kingdom seems pretty abstract. What what's Matthew or rather what's Jesus talking about in the book of yeah. Matthew with kingdom? How does this carry on through other books in the New Testament? I mean, maybe I'm I'm opening up a can of worms as far as the amount of time we've got. But I'd just like to know about that and what it has to do with the book of Matthew. Well, again. Matthew uses a phrase that's different than what you find in other gospel accounts. Most of the other gospel accounts do talk about the kingdom, but they talk about the kingdom of God. Matthew uses the term kingdom of heaven, and I'll talk about that in just a second. But let's just think about this kingdom concept. Jesus came from a Jewish background, a kingdom concept. In fact, even if you go back to the very inception, basically, of, of Israel coming into its own God says, I'm going to make you, Israel, a kingdom of priests. In other words, they were going to be, shall we say, the priesthood for the world had they been faithful. Now, they weren't faithful, so that that threw a a kink in things. But the idea of a kingdom is not familiar to us because, like you said, we live in a democracy, or we think we do anyway. Uh, But a kingdom has always been part, typically, of world history where you had one central authority. You had a head of state or a central authority. And then others, of course, lived underneath that reign or that rule. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem with human kingdoms is oppression. 
Once in a while you'll find a benevolent ruler, but many times the king is not about the people, he's about himself. Well, that concept then as you work your way through the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, you have, of course, had some good kings, some bad kings, but that kingdom concept was something that God gave the nation of Israel because he himself was the king. Mm. In fact, he's the king in the garden right. and in some ways gives Adam a co-regency, Adam and Eve, to tend the garden. But God is the ultimate authority. And that's really what a king is. Right. Okay, so when you come to the kingdom concept, that is the idea of the ultimate authority that Jesus has over us in a spiritual way. Uh, basically, when you look, for example, at Matthew 4, you find King Jesus facing off against King Satan. Right. There's basically two divisions, kingdoms of the world and kingdom of God, yeah. kingdom yeah. of heaven, the spiritual nature. Well, you brought up last night as well, just to, to continue that theme in Matthew chapter 2, the king of uh, Herod. Herod versus the king of who'd just been born. So yeah. king versus king. king you versus have this kingdom. Yeah, you have a kingdom fight all the way through. And we'll talk actually about that tonight a little <clears throat> bit more. But Jesus is presented as the king. Why? Because people need a leader. Without leadership, humans are chaotic. Same spiritually. We need a spiritual leader. So Jesus is the king. The kingdom then would be those under his uh, reign. When you look at the term kingdom, and it comes from uh, the word basileia. Okay. And it focuses on the reign of an individual. The reign as in, not water, but reign as in power okay. or authority. Okay. So there are four things that a kingdom need to exist. You have to have, of course, a king. Right. You have to have some sort of a territory. Okay. You have to have subjects. Mm -hmm. And you have to have a law. Okay. All of those, Jesus gives us spiritually he's the king back in matthew 28 he says all authority is given to me mm -hmm. so he's the king so you have a king and then you have subjects that's us right we're the we're the subjects we voluntarily submit mm -hmm. to jesus and he is our leader our king benevolent king then you have a territory and what you'll find in the sermon on the mount for example is the territory is not a landmass it is not a kingdom on this earth or the, a special spot on this earth. It is in the hearts and the minds right. of the individuals. Right. So that's the reason the Sermon on the Mount gives so many things about the heart. And then, of course, you have a law, a, a law of rule or a, a rule or some sort of a, a structure. Yeah. Now, we typically sort of recoil at the term law, but laws are good when they're given by a benevolent king. Right. They're for our benefit. Right. So you have those four things, and, of course, Humanity needs those four things to be productive spiritually and physically, but spiritually. So Jesus then gives us the kingdom. Now, many times we equate the kingdom with the church. Right. Now, the church is an important concept in the scriptures. But what I like about the gospels is it focuses not on the church, but on the kingdom. Mm. Because it's talking about the spiritual reign or rule over people's lives. Many times because of our cultural baggage and historical baggage, we think of church as being very institutional. We think of the buildings. We think of all the trappings. But in reality, the term kingdom or the idea of kingdom is more about the people and the relationship they have with the leader. Mm -hmm. So I really think the kingdom 
is something we need to be teaching more and more about. I mean, we, we've been pretty good through the years about talking about the church. We go to the Ephesians and all and talk about, you know, he being the head of the body, the church and all that. But the kingdom concept is the reign of Christ in my life, in my right. personal life. Right. And that's where it's tough. Well, you brought out in, in Matthew chapter 16 um, about upon this rock I'll build my church is not a uh, congregation might be a more appropriate translation. Yeah, yeah. that's that's right. Um, the word there, and it's pronounced in various ways, and I'm not a Greek scholar, but it's the word ecclesia, as we right. typically anglicized it. Upon this rock I will build my ecclesia, and that was translated church. That goes back apparently to John Wycliffe, who in the 1400s or so was translating the Bible into English, and he used the word church. But now actually, the word church in the Greek is not ekklesia. Right. It is, I think it's kyriakos, and it means the Lord's own. Now sure, Jesus was going to build something that was his, but the word kyriakos is used in the New Testament two times, one of the Lord's day, and one of the Lord's Supper, mm. okay? So that's a different word. Right. If translated correctly, and I think language has baggage, so sometimes we have to be careful how we translate things, but really the word church, as it's found in the King James, especially in Matthew 16, verse 18, should be translated assembly or congregation. Right. Well, I'm thinking about just the follow-up phrase to that where he says, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I mean, I don't know why I believed this for so many years, but I, I almost saw it where the church was the castle and Satan was attacking, but it's the opposite of that. It's the gates of hell. Gates aren't used for offensive you know, assaults. They're used for defensive. defensive. And so the idea of that scripture is that upon this rock, I'll build this assembly, this kingdom, mm -hmm. and my servants... They're going to take the fight to the devil. That's cool. That is cool. I think that passage has a lot of nuance in it. You know, Jesus, I think, is also implying there that his kingdom, his church, as we say, um, will never be overthrown even by his death. He's going to go down into the Hadean realm, you know, the realm of, of Satan, if you will, and he's going to come out of death. Yeah. And so nothing's going to prevail against his, his plan to create an assembly. I also mentioned last night uh, that in Acts chapter 7, in Stephen's speech, when he talks about Moses in the wilderness, oh, right. he speaks of the congregation in the wilderness. The old King James uses the word church. Why? Because that's the word ecclesia. That, right. again, is not a great translation. Church shouldn't be, we don't think of Moses as church. No, we think of Moses as Israel or Moses as congregation. What Jesus is doing there is he's kind of saying what Moses did. He said, I'm the new Moses. Moses had a congregation in the wilderness. I'm going to develop a congregation or a people or community. Right. And this community is going to be victorious. Well, when I think of the church, that English word, I think of church history. I think of Catholicism. I think of the, crusades. the big crusades. I yeah. think of the, 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 you know, the mechanism. Uh, mechanisms that, that drove political Christianity. And even today, I think of the church as a building, the walls, the structure, the right. programs. Right. That's not what Jesus was promising to build. Now, there may be some of that that's fine. 
that's another issue. I don't think it's wrong to have a building. But what Jesus was building was not an edifice or structure of brick and mortar. He was building a community. Why can't we use those terms? Why shouldn't we use those right. terms? Do you have a final thought maybe you'd like to share with our, our listeners about this gospel and uh, the message that, that Matthew was trying to tell us? Well, yeah, I think the overall thrust of Matthew is the kingship of Jesus. And I don't mean that in some esoteric and or ethereal way. I mean in your life, in your heart. Mm. Who do you say that Jesus is, is really the focus. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think we need to come up with the right answer by studying the life of Christ. And I'm very happy to have had this chance to present these concepts because it's not something we typically do right. in meetings or sermons. Right. This, to me, is a very helpful way of presenting the gospel, the good news. And the gospel initially was about the kingdom. Mm -hmm. The king is coming. The gospel of the kingdom. So that's where we start. Well, thank you for sitting with me and chatting about the book. Very grateful for it. My pleasure. Thank you again, Brother Mike, for taking some time out of his day to chat with me about the Gospel of Matthew, a book that he wrote a commentary on. And uh, I look forward to having more of these commentary-based conversations in the future because I've found great value in kind of going through the book, going through the commentary, and then talking to the author about it. There's a lot in the Contending for the Faith commentary series, a lot of people whom I could interview. And if you find encouragement in it, then reach out and let me know. And maybe I'll make it a priority to interview these guys. So until next time, go to the website, check out all of the videos, podcasts, study guides, and everything that you can download absolutely free. And always remember that God loves you very much, and I do too. Lord willing, see you soon. Well, I'm here to tell you a story, a story that is true, about a judge by the name of Gideon. He was a man like me and you.